You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 37, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thanks again for joining me for another episode. Today we're going to be discussing opting out as a specialist for our physicians. We spent a lot of time talking about direct primary care as an alternative way of delivering health care, as leaving the third-party payer system, meaning you have someone else paying for your health insurance, whether that's a government payer like Medicare or Medicaid, or a commercial payer like Aetna, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, etc. And so you have a direct pay- financial relationship with the patient and the physician, much like the way you get any other services or products in the market today. When you go to the grocery store, you're paying the grocery store. You're not paying someone else to buy the groceries for you, who then might choose what sort of groceries you can purchase and how much you can spend on them, all the while charging you a premium for that service. Today's guest is Dr. Ellen McKnight. She's a rheumatologist in private practice in Pensacola, Florida. She's opted out of the government payers Medicare and Medicaid a number of years ago, which allows her to remove a lot of the burdens and regulations that go along with having those payers. She's also almost completely eliminated herself from all other third-party payers and has gotten to an almost pure cash-based system with very affordable prices. She's been able to maintain her practice, practice the way she wants, not be overloaded with regulations and electronic health records that don't work. Instead, she's been able to practice and provide care for her patients with an infusion center for their convenience as well. I think if you're a specialist, you find this an inspiring story and potentially something to chew on to think about maybe this is a different way to practice. And as a patient, hopefully you can look at this and decide that maybe the way we are doing things right now needs to be rethought as well, whether that's using Medicare for, for your care or another traditional insurance. It really becomes an interesting discussion as we look even at Medicare for all, which has been proposed by some politicians and those in the media. We have to question whether it's entirely free because not only do you have to pay for it in taxes, but also, even if you look at Medicare now being provided to senior citizens, they often have to have supplemental insurance, and there's an expectation for paying part of it, too. So is there perhaps a different way of providing this care? There are a number of links and references back to past episodes. These will all be linked in the show notes page, as well as a video of a talk Dr. McKnight gave recently at a direct primary care conference in Orlando, Florida, entitled The Activated Physician. Those can all be found at theparadox.com, that's P-R-A-D-O-C-S, paradox.com slash 037. As well, you can go to patreon.com slash theparadox and become a patron supporter of the show where all money raised goes towards the production and the promotion of the show. But without further ado, Dr. Ellen McKnight and how to operate as a specialist outside the third-party system. Enjoy. I'm with my new friend, Dr. Ellen McKnight, who lives in Pensacola and has been practicing rheumatology for a number of years. She recently opened the Summit Arthritis Infusion Clinic, where she's all by herself, as she said. (laughs) She's... She grew up in New Orleans, attended LSU College of Medicine Medical School, trained in rheumatology in New Orleans as well. She's married to an ophthalmologist, which we joke in anesthesia is barely a physician. Um, <laughs> hopefully your husband doesn't listen to the podcast. Uh, but uh, I'd like to reckon you, welcome to the show to talk about your practice and sort of what's going on in medicine. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to having a conversation about um, what we're doing here in Pensacola to try to get patients access to care. Uh, and I'm looking forward to having that conversation with you. Well, let's begin with sort of, I guess, how I discovered you. I've had a number of discussions with direct primary care physicians. And for those who have not listened, I'd recommend that there are about five episodes I've done. But it's just a, the way of, it's sort of people who've left the, and by people I mean physicians, who've left the third-party payer system, which means you're not using insurance to get your care. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a number of specialties in medicine traditionally who have not who have been outside that system. I, I think plastic surgeons are the most obvious ones for the cosmetic uh, portion of their of care. No one expects to have a breast augmentation paid for by their insurance. Um, but outside of that, maybe some ophthalmologists who do LASIKs and some uh, some other procedures. 
most of medicine has has operated within the third party system. I'm in anesthesia, and clearly we, we spend with a lot of our time uh, dealing with third party payers for uh, surgery. Uh, you're a rheumatologist, mm-hmm. so you treat as I uh, jokingly referred to in a couple episodes ago uh, the rheumatism, which <laughs> uh, is a term we don't we don't really is not really a term that we that we use in medicine anymore since we since we're much more focused on specific labels of actual treating diseases. Um, and so why don't you go through your career cuz you're um you're past mid-career I suppose somewhere yes. mm-hmm. uh, my hunch. Yes. Uh what did you you moved to Florida at some point kind of go through your practice and sort of how you got to where you are right now. So um as I, after I finished up my fellowship um, my husband and I moved to Pensacola. And I worked for 15 and a half years in a uh, musculoskeletal multi-specialty group. We had orthopedists, uh, rheumatology. I was the only rheumatologist, pain medicine, uh, physiatry. And it was a really, it was a great setup. And that went for about 15 and a half years. And then various things occurred. And I decided to go out on my own 10 years ago. So I actually started Summit Arthritis and Infusion in uh, 2009. Uh, and then after that, I had when I first got into that first year of practice, I mean, I took every single insurance, Medicaid, Medicare, you know, you name it, third parties. And then about a year in, I realized that Medicare was telling me over and over again through their emails from CMS that what they were going to do is to start penalizing me in either 2015 or 2016, 2015 or 2016, if I did not adopt the um what i call the junky clunky ehr you know and (laughs) and start doing things like meaningless use and all the rest of it and i said i I knew to myself at that time that unless something dramatically changed with the ehr i was not going to do that so in 2010 i stopped accepting new medicare patients into my practice, which at the time to the other rheumatologist seemed a little bit like, are you kidding me? You know, they couldn't believe what I was doing. And then in, ultimately it was January 1st, 2016, when I, when I did ultimately uh, opt out. And so I had prepared to some degree my practice for that transition. And, uh, and so now I'm at the end of my, well, actually, I guess the beginning of my fourth year of opt out now, I've had three complete years of opted out of, um, rheum- of uh, Medicare as a rheumatologist. You know, and I'm doing just fine, and my patients are doing just fine. And I, what I, the way I like to say it is, I gave up on the Medicare system, not the Medicare patient, because I still see a lot of Medicare patients. They come in and pay what I call my fair cash pricing, and I'll be happy to to share, to kind of go over with you what I decided to do and how I incentivize patients to to come in and see me for their chronic illness. Um, interestingly enough, though, prior to opting out of Medicare. I had stepped out of the out of Medicaid because I was seeing Medicaid patients, but Medicaid was doing all sorts of things where they were paying me like one penny and one nickel, <laughs> you know, this kind of thing. And they were sort of really messing up my accounting. And so I decided sure. I decided that I would step out of Medicaid. When I made that decision, um, I did that very abruptly. I didn't warn those patients as I did with my Medicare patients as to what was coming. So I told them, I said, look, I will see you. These are the Medicaid patients. And I didn't have a huge number of them. I said, I'll see you for the next six months for free. And that will give you time because it takes time for those patients to establish with another doctor. So I said, it'll take, so you'll have the time to establish or here are my fair cash prices, or you can come in and, and you can pay me. So I have an interesting story during that little time. I had one of the patients who was Medicaid, who was, I was seeing her during that six months period for free. Well, one of the visits she comes in and she has not one, not two, but three new lip piercings, you know, and I was like, okay, this is, there's a, there's something is so wrong with all of this. Now I still, actually, I still see her to this day. I didn't even say anything to her because I didn't say, well, I'll see you for free if you don't get tattoos or lip piercings or, you know, I I didn't spell that part of it out, you know? So anyway, long story short, I, I went ahead and both of those eventually, I'm, I'm opted out of, I don't know if you use the term, I'm disenrolled from Medicaid and I'm opted out of Medicare. And this year I'm starting to go out of network with third parties. So I did that, I think it was Cigna is the one that I've done first here in Pensacola. And I'm going to transition out of that and then I'll give that six months and then I'll choose another one. And I'm going to start down that journey to the point where I will not be um in the third party system at all, if possible. And I think this is a, 
probably an, a fair point to discuss, and I don't think I've just gone over this much in my show, but uh, when it comes to the government, when you have a government payers, it makes it very tricky for uh, providing care and and alternative pricing patterns, right? I mean, I think uh, you can't provide free care to some patients and not others, and you can't provide discounted pricing. And once, so I guess, can you go over why it's important to sort of, I guess if you're going to, if you're in the process of uh, de-third party paying yourself, yeah, <laughs> you start probably with the government payers for these reasons that the extra, the extra regulations and restrictions that are imposed on you. Right. And I, I think it, for my, for me, it was important to, to do particularly Medicare first before the others, because it's Medicare really that drives all of the re- the perverse incentives and torturous regulations, as I like to call it. I mean, they they drive it, and the insurance companies then follow. It's an amazing thing. I have a hashtag called hashtag opt out magic. I mean, the second you opt out of Medicare, it's like this magical release uh, of you of these burdens. You're not these burdens are no longer on you, and it just is a great way to practice medicine. It's interesting because you mentioned in some of your podcasts that, that it's not all physicians that listen, that you have some non-physicians who listen, it, and they would be very surprised to know that it was actually Medicare that put into place that you can't. So if I see a patient who's uninsured, I see someone who's uninsured, and I want to say, I say okay, Medicare, I might charge Medicare 150 they may pay me 75 so let me just let me just charge this uninsured patient what Medicare would have paid me. Well, no, Medicare makes that essentially Medicare fraud if you do that. You have to charge the uninsured patient what you bill Medicare and then and then expect to get that price from them. So you would then bill them the 150 and expect to get 150 from them. So that always to me was wrong. And and when I explain that to patients, they are horrified. And so when you think about some of the things that drove um, HMOs and all that in the early days, it was these enormous bills that uninsured or underinsured people were getting from hospitals, $500,000. Well, that was the Medicare law that mandated that when you think about it. And so it's all of it is so messed up. And again, Medicare also not only can they come at any time and take your money back and claim you didn't do something right, they can't. They have the legal power to basically accuse you of something like Medicare fraud and go after you in that way. So it's nice to be out of a system where a simple mistake, if one, if they desired it to be, could be blown up into something much more serious. So I was happy to to put that to rest. It's almost like uh, finally paying off your last mortgage payment exactly. or getting out of debt, right? You don't, um, you oftentimes don't realize the burden you feel until it's gone. You're like, wow, that's a weight so, off my shoulders. So true. And the other thing that a lot of doctors don't even realize that many of the, the, the things that we live under, like Stark, all of that is for participating doctors in Medicare. I mean, once you opt out of Medicare, none of those things apply to you anymore. And in fact, even some of the more onerous regulations in HIPAA. Now, I'm not an attorney, so I would want somebody to spell that out for people really, really carefully what is and what is no longer, what you know, what no longer applies to you once you opt out of Medicare. But many of those things just poof like magic go away. And it's just an amazing uh, thing. Um, so, and actually, one of the things that, that I'm happy about is that I kept, even in the initial phase through 57% of my Medicare patients stayed with me. So I had a night, a, a big chunk that stayed because I kept my prices fair. And I think they looked at it and said, okay, wait a minute. Am I going to give Dr. McKnight up because we have a long relationship and I think she uh, knows my situation and cares about me for this price, which would be between 75 and $95. And yeah. for a fellowship trained rheumatologist, you know, um, most most of those patients decided that it was in their best interest to stay, and many of them have. And you know, I'm cognizant they're they're paying uh, out of their pocket, and so I do try to keep everything as fair as I can. But it's been so, successful. With two questions about the mm-hmm. Medicare. Then um, one is, are you getting new patients? Uh, because I can understand if you're an established patient, you're like, well, this is, you know, she does a great job treating me, and we've she knows my problems, and you know everything's going well. There's no reason to switch for an affordable price. Sure. And the other is more a question about Medicare in general for people who don't understand, because I think in the national media, there's, there's of course 
there's this push for Medicare for all from a number or single payer system of some sort. And I think people forget that Medicare does not pay for everything. So can you explain sort of for the for the the people who think, oh, once I have Medicare, everything's totally free. Right. That's probably not the case even in a practice like yours. And so even though you're charging some uh, some some cash pay for seeing you, it may not be significantly different. Correct. Is that well, I do correct? believe uh, yeah, that's absolutely correct. Um, the, the Medicare um, patient is required to pay. There's an initial, like if you have Medicare and a secondary, my understanding is that you pay your initial um, uh whatever the deductible would be. And it's always very low in Medicare. I mean, that is an advantage. Uh, however, those secondary plans are kind of expensive. Uh, and, and Medicare always only pays 80%. And so, you know, you're always obligated if you don't have that secondary to pay the extra 20%. But really, where it's, it's some of those Medicare Advantage plans. Patients are financing a lot of it themselves. I mean, they are paying mm-hmm. higher co-pays, you know, and all of this. But to get to the new Medicare patient. Um, I, that would be an area where I probably don't see as many uh, as I did at one time. But again, you know, I had limited Medicare news for almost since 2010. I mean, I wasn't really openly accepting new Medicares anyway. So that wasn't really a huge transition for me. However, I have some Medicare patients that come in as news and they come in as new patients because frankly, they can't get in to see someone else. I mean, they're right. The the other doctors. Here's what patients don't understand. Other doctors limit their Medicare slots. You know, so it's not like you can call up and if there's an open vacancy, you know, of a slot, you're going to get it. No, the next Medicare slot might be six months down the road. And for Medicaid, that's even worse. I mean, you may never be able to get in as a new patient to see a, a, a so-called specialist who takes Medicaid. I mean, that's just almost an impossibility. So that access issue actually for some people is a lower hurdle if they're willing to come and pay the cash because they can get in. And that's what we've always said. Coverage does not always equal care. This would be a perfect example of that. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, you hear people talk about it all the time that just because you have insurance doesn't mean you actually have any access to care. Absolutely. You just can't run a card that says I have, I can, someone will pay for my care, but if they don't pay enough for anyone to, to make it worthwhile or make it even economically feasible, you're never going to get seen by anyone. Correct. I mean, I know my wife's my wife's a pediatrician, and yep. if, and I don't remember what the percentages of Medicare, but or Medicaid, but if she doesn't see Medicare, but if Medicaid, I think it's if you get over like seven or eight percent Medicaid, mm-hmm. you're you're financially it's not viable for your Correct. practice because the overhead is so so severe and the payment is so low. Right. It doesn't make it. You and know, you know, there was a very recent. I just saw this on Twitter, and I'm not going to be able to cite where I, where I read it, but it was uh, talking about. Um, payers and who is most likely not to pay you for services already rendered first was fee for service medicaid second was medicaid um like hmo third fee for service medicare fourth uh medicaid i mean the uh, medicare replacement plans you know these advantage plans so right there just goes to show you those particularly those government plans they delay payment or they don't pay and that is a common issue. And that's one of the other frustrations that doctors feel when dealing with that. I'd like to see, frankly, what I'd really like to see, even for particularly for this new expansion of Medicaid, I would have liked to have seen them do that in a different way. Possibly these are people who are working, who now have been priced out of the um, market to get health you know, insurance. So it would have been a great idea to say, okay, we're not going to put you into the traditional Medicaid. What we'll do is the government will fund for you a health savings account, and then we will allow you to use Medicaid if you get into a catastrophic situation. And what you will have this money. We will fund it every year. At the end of however many years, like maybe you give them a five-year guarantee, then they may still have money in that health savings account if they've used it wisely. That could then go with them as they hopefully climb the ladder, get a better job, have a higher paying situation, and then may get health insurance from their new employer. Do you see what I mean? Where it doesn't, oh, yeah. where it doesn't commit them to a lifelong Medicaid dependency. And I think we made a big mistake with the Medicare expansion to not think differently about that. I mean, everybody wants people to have particularly catastrophic care, but this everyday access, like to your pediatrician, you should be able to go to a health savings account, 
go up to their front desk. What do you have for a cash price? Swipe it, <laughs> you know, your card right. and not have right. to deal with all of that. Plus give these people a chance to take that with them into a new job where they actually acquire something. So of course, no one, you know, no one even entertained anything like that. It just would have been a smarter way to go, I think. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, Asima Verma, who's the new, uh, was she the HHS director? She's, yeah, CMS um, um, director, she, yeah. Yeah, she came from Indiana, and they actually instituted a similar program to what you mentioned mm-hmm. in Indiana for their Medicaid patients. But to the point uh, of just government payers and government regulations and rules, they had a, the state of Indiana had a, to request all sorts of waivers, and it was, and the ability to have innovative ways, solutions to, to solve problems when you have the federal government to one size fits all generally program mm-hmm. um, mandate. It just makes it very difficult and clunky, and it, it basically eliminates the opportunity to have any innovations or um, alternative ways of delivering care. So to to what we talk about on the show a lot is it that sort of thing is the, the thing that's an impediment to providing care and finding ways of, of caring for people who aren't able to, you know, we're not able to care for right now. We can pass all the Medicaid expansions we want, but if we're unable to pay for it to make it so that people can actually keep the lights on in their practices. Correct. And I don't say they keep the lights on because they have to all make, you know, walk away with half a million dollars. I mean, we're right. talking about truly like making, making more than you, than you're, you know, you're losing money. And so, so you, you no it, one's going to run any business that way. And so, because you have to pay people, you have to fill out the forms regular, And so there's a lot of overhead that goes in these practices. Right. So anyway, um, well, and nor so should one question, they be expected okay. to. I mean, basically, no. people like look at doctors and it's like, well, yeah, well, you know, that's just what you do. And it's like, well, no, I yeah, don't go right. bankrupt, um, you know, trying to. Um, and then that's why I think these innovative ideas are coming out because doctors are. It is the breaking point. Either you're going to literally be in the system and miserable, burned out on the verge of some practices on the verge of bankruptcy, or you're going to try something new. And I think that's what yeah. you're seeing with these new movements. Yes. And it's, I think it's I think exciting. You, I think when you see that 10%, it was like that when you can, when you can offer services at 10% to what they're normally offered, mm-hmm. then you see the innovation breaking through even when um, the system sort of stacked against you because your, your cost savings are so significant. Correct. Uh, which is why you're seeing that with DPC. I mean, now once deductibles hit a certain point, people were willing to look for other places because they're like, this is insane. I'm paying $20,000 a year in premiums. Correct. Plus I have a deductible that's maybe ten dollars $15,000. I mean, I, we have a, a, couple, a friend with their family, their deductible and premium is almost 50,000 a year. Uh, I, so for them, it's, you know, it's, it's, un, it's untenable, right? It, absolutely. It's, as it goes up. So, well, I had a patient uh, in the other day, I'll just give you this quick story. She had uh, fallen and she uh, tra- she had got a fracture that needed a surgical pinning and the whole deal. And so she comes in and she's not on Medicare. She's probably in her early 60s. And then, of course, I start talking to her about osteopenia and fracture and the risk of mm-hmm. fracture coming up in the next year and how much greater it is. We need to start some stuff, you know, and the whole deal. And she's like, I can't do any more, Dr. McKnight, because um, I have I pay a thousand dollars a month in a premium. My de- my deductible is ten thousand dollars. This surgery was sixty five hundred dollars right out of my pocket. I don't even know what else is still out there. You know this surprise stuff where people are yeah, right. getting things months after. She said I can't do that right now. You know, and that's a that's a real problem because this issue that I was trying to address with her really should have been addressed at that visit. We should have considered what other medicines we could get her on and all the rest. She was like, I can't do it. She, I, and she was unwilling to go even there down the conversation, the road of conversation. She was tapped out. And that is just, unf- and she's paying a thousand dollars a month in a premium. And so you got to write For that what? check on top of the 6,500. And this, yeah. this turns over every year. I mean, this is, so you're really funding your healthcare, the first 20,000 or so, and maybe more a year that has made the patient a real consumer. The, the problem is, if you've ever talked to uh, Kevin Way Casey, you know, he's the guy who does healthcare economics. His point is that patients are addicted to their insurance and they basically yeah. think that they can't do anything. They want their insurance to pay for the doctor's visit, for instance, which is silly. It should be there for mm-hmm. catastrophic. Well, they're paying $1,000 a month in a premium to come in and pay my 75 to $95 office visit for their insurance to pay that. That's silly. That doesn't make sense on any level. If they were just getting catastrophic coverage, you know, their premium would be much more reduced and 
and all the rest, and then they could get, get a large health savings account. So um, people, we, we have to change the mindset of patients as well. A doctor's mindsets are definitely changing. Patients are a little slower because they're addicted to having, quote, great coverage, which they do not have any longer. They have, they're paying as though they have Cadillac coverage, and they really have catastrophic if they even have that, you know? Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, and I think that's just the, the, uh, the human mind can only adapt so quickly to changing <laughs> conditions, right? Yeah. Oh, yes. And, I know that myself. I, uh, right. I mean, I think physicians are the same way, right? Yes. You see, you see this doc who's been practicing for 20 years. You're like, why are you still doing that? Yeah. That's kind of been not a discredited, but it's, it's just, not it's an just we don't treatment. do it that way anymore, you know? And, and, and right. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and if you look at how quickly healthcare has become expensive in the sense of the, I guess I should say how insurance has changed and the fact that it's, the deductibles have gone up so quickly. So, uh, within really the last 10 years, yes. if that. It was Obamacare it, it, that it, really brought in all of that, honestly. That yeah, high, I mean, it, 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 it probably accelerated what was already happening, right? Oh, yeah, but, yeah. And I'm not blaming um, Obamacare for everything, but I will say it made right. people real consumers because they are spending enormous money on their health coverage right now. So it made them right, yeah. real, real, real consumers for sure. Yeah, I think the breaking point, the breaking point was about around then and and whether that was coincidental or, right. um, but Causative. certainly, I mean, more yep. coverage, more things were forced in coverage and, right. and all the other mandates. Um, so one of the questions I get a lot of times when I talk, when I talk to direct primary care physicians, they're obviously primary care, so they're right. taking care of, you know, it. It lends itself to a long-standing relationship generally, mm-hmm. uh, and so you can have you can envision a membership-based, you know, practice. Right. Uh, with specialists, it's very different. It's sometimes episodic, like someone has some temporary condition. Rheumatology a little different because yeah. your patients generally have things that are chronic. But uh, if a, and so the question I always get from people is like, well, you know. I really can't afford to come out of, because I'm finishing my, you know, I did medical school, I did residency, then I did a fellowship, and I've sort of been deferring my payments or maybe making my student loan payments. I've got, you know, $250,000 of loans. It doesn't make any sense economically for me to go out and say, I'm just going to hang up a shingle and just hope people come to see me and I'm going to have a, a con- not a concierge, but like a some sort of right. you know, cash pay system where I don't use it to take insurers. I just can't survive in a market like that. Um because I, I need to, you know, pay off my sure. debt right away. Right. So, so what would you say to people? Uh, because I think you know you probably could do it either way, right? I right. mean, you can. So, what would you? What well, would you recommend to new grads that, I mean, now? The scenario that you just outlined, yes, that's a more difficult thing. I mean, if you if you get out of medical school and all the training with a lot of debt, then but 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 I was listening um, at that conference where I just was to the white coat investor whose name escapes me right now, but his point was what you do is you leave your fellowship. And you still live like a fellow <laughs> for sure. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. three mm-hmm. to five years and get all that paid off, you know. Uh, and then what will happen is later, you know, then the, the everything kind of flips around and, and you can sort of right the ship. And the other thing about employment is if you go into employment, yes, that first few years is going to seem like a really good thing for you because you're going from making whatever, $45,000 to maybe one hundred and twenty or whatever they've got you starting. Yeah, right, I don't right. know. You know, it's not. But but the difference is like threefold or what have you. And you're thinking this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. However, your chance for doing better over time is more of a flat line or a very slight increase in an employment situation. It's not like you're going to start at some sort of baseline and then go much, much higher over time. You'll get little increments so that you don't leave. Um, But they'll do things like, apparently I've been reading some things where where these uh, young doctors start and they say, okay, you're, you're going to need to see 15 patients a day. And then it creeps to 18 and then it creeps to 20 something. And then it creeps where you're going to supervise all the extenders and you know there's a lot added on that you have little to say about you know when you are um when you are in um employed now one thing again i'm (laughs) i'm not an attorney but if i were young and i loved the idea of practicing third party free but i didn't feel that i could what i would try to at least get in my contract would be something along the lines of Okay, if it particularly in states where the non compete is 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 enforceable, you could say, okay, uh, I want this in my contract. If I leave employment with this hospital, um, I and I and I leave and I go out third party free, then I'm not competing with you because you take you're in on Medicare. You don't even want the people. See. You see yeah. what I mean? So I'm not mm-hmm. in a real because if you've established some, you know, so you've gotten established, you have some patients who are loyal to you. 
they'll follow you, but they're not going to follow you to another state, but they would follow you in that community. So some would leave with you. Um, so you're not like going to be starting from zero. Uh, however, it is difficult to go. Uh, that was one of the reasons I believe that I was very successful in what I did is that I had a long practice here. I had many loyal patients. Rheumatology is that way that if they're comfortable, you know, they have chronic illness, they like the way you're managing them. You know, th there's a loyalty there. So it's, it is a more difficult thing, but I, I don't think impossible. And for the doctors who are lucky enough to leave with no debt, they should surely think of these things because they could weather uh, you know, live like a fellow a little longer and kind of weather the storm and go, you know, again, I have three office staff. I don't have eight, nine, ten. You know what I mean? I, you got to right. you mm -hmm. have to have a little bit more of a streamline. But I think it can be done. But but there have to be there's some that are going to be more ready to do it than others. However, the ones that can't should not be denigrating or disparaging or you know, anything of the doctors who are breaking free. I got a little bit of that at this conference where someone was like, well, where do you send your Medicare patients to infuse? And I said, well, they have to go to the hospital. And he said, well, but it's so much more expensive to get it done at the hospital. And I, and I was like, well, Medicare should fix that. <laughs> I mean, who, yeah, right. it's not your problem, I mean, not your Medi fault. They should fix that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm providing my Medicare patients a service. Uh, that, so that is one thing I'd like folks to know that, you know, when you opt out of Medicare, there, you, you, you can still order the labs that you order at the hospital. Nothing can be done in your office for the most part, but the office visit, which the patient pays cash. And if, if I do an injection, they'll pay me some extra for that. Uh, but if I order lab, you know, Medicare covers that. If I order x-rays, Medicare covers that. Uh, and that's the way it should be. I mean, they shouldn't penalize the patient who wants to see me. And uh, so anyway, it, it, it can work in that way. And, and so now you have, you have an interesting situation. And only that you have your own infusion center, so you have an alternative stream of revenue in your office. Mm -hmm. It'd simil be similar to um, an, an orthopedic surgeon who has, you know, an x-ray machine and has maybe some radiology mm -hmm. capabilities or... Um, what, what sort of regulatory hurdles do you deal with, with your infusion center? Do you have, do you deal with JACO? Like you know, Commission? no, they don't know. And well, of course I hate to say this, maybe somebody's going to show up, but we, <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? We don't have a lot of regulatory things that come through. I mean, we could be, OSHA could come to the door at any time and we would have to be following whatever you follow for that. But no, we haven't really, I mean, there, you know. Um, no. And in fact, a lot of rheumatologists are doing these infusions in their offices and they're actually, to be perfectly honest, so much better for the patient to get it in the doctor's office. It's easier. It's cheaper. And these people are debilitated. It's hard for them to park, you know, five miles out at the hospital, you know, and get shuttled in. Do you know what I mean? So it's a, oh, it's, yeah, a it's right. a much better situation, but that's, but I do a lot less of the, of the medication infusion. That was just something I was willing to to let go because I, I, I mean, so I still make a little revenue off of that, but the only thing I really get paid for is my nurse time. So for instance, I buy the medications uh, through, I have the patient do what's called specialty pharmacy. So I only have a few people that I buy and bill for. And what I mean by that is I pay for the medicine, I infuse it, and then I hope to be paid. I, I decided that was not good for my happiness quotient because I would worry, <laughs> you know, about yeah, right. unpaid claims. Mm -hmm. And then when we made a stupid mistake, which did happen occasionally, I would get frustrated by that. And I thought, you know what? I, I don't want to deal with that. I, 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 I'm, I, so I make a, a little revenue off of that, but m most of my revenue is, is generated by, by what I do. And we do things like B12 shots and things like that. And so we get a little off of those things. But um, yeah, so it's, it, it, but it's working. It definitely is. Yeah, my, my, mo my mother actually has rheumatoid arthritis and she's yeah. gotten number different if you, you know, after a while the yeah. medicine stops working, she switches. Yeah, and so sure. she, they had to find an infusion center down in Florida when they, where they winter. Um, right. And so, and same thing, it's in someone's office. And I think it's a number of rheumatologists who are in office. But um, one, one question I had about the, in which I thought was funny, mm -hmm. your, how you referred to the electronic health record. But right. um, yeah. I think very few people are fans of this. And I think patients don't realize that the reason their electronic health records are around uh, is is because it's a mandate through the, um, I think it's the High Tech Act, right. uh, was sort of where it began, and then also it's it it also is, it ties in with HIPAA, so oh. it allows your your data as a patient to be sold to mm -hmm. uh, a couple million vendors in the United States, 
And so HIPAA, as if you want to go back and listen to my episode, uh, for those of you listening, uh, where I talked to Twyla Bray, she talks about HIPAA and how it's not any sort of a privacy uh, act, but it was an actually an act to take your data and be able to more efficiently give it to vendors. <laughs> portability, correct. Portability, right. It's yeah. a portability, although you're not going to have any control over it. And so um, anyway, so it's, we are, it's always treated as if it's some sort of uh, privacy protection, but it really didn't change anything with medical ethics or anything with privacy. It's, it's all about uh, moving your data around. But it, a lot of that is tied into the HRs. And so a number of years ago, I talked, I was in a, I was at a, conference on Mackinac Island and I was just sitting with a side across from a, a veterinarian and I think it was even in maybe it was residency or just had just started and he was talking about how dumb doctors were because he's like <laughs> we have we have this electronic health record we have this record system electronically and I can it streamlines my service I can keep my notes in order I can figure out how to, I can bill people real quickly I can keep all the data information. I just, you know, he desi- I think he designed it and he ended up selling it. So he made a decent amount oh, of money see. doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for the veterinarians, it was, a, it was a huge thing because it added tremendous efficiency to their day because mm-hmm. they had all their stuff in one place. They're not like writing down a paper and storing, you know, I mean, right. it's, it's what you imagine a computer system work, right? Right. And yet in medicine, we have electronic health, electronic health record that is completely, I don't want to say useless, but it's, mm-hmm. it's very cumbersome. Uh, clunky. It's hard. It's got so much extraneous information because of mandates from the government and whatnot. Um, as someone who's outside the system, mm-hmm. sort of, mm-hmm. I guess you're kind of, mm-hmm. because all the private insurers still require a lot of those same metrics to be uh, obtained and all those. Do you use your own electronic health record or are you planning to move away from it? I mean, no, no. So, so reasonable I'm glad ones? You, no, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I always make the clarifying point that I... Um, that I have Mac computers in every room. So I use computers. I have a what I call, well, I use something called Mac Practice, which is my office management system, which helps me with my, with my billing and collecting, makes my appointment. It's just an amazing thing. And within that, I've developed a bit of a, you know, a charting system. So there is a little bit of paper involved in the actual office visit, and then it's, and then it's put into the chart. I have never, I never, I, occasionally, you know, some insurer will want my records and no one has ever said that they don't meet whatever the criteria they're looking for. But I never have participated in anything government related, like me, meaningful use, PQRs. I don't even know, honestly, what those are because I've never done them. (laughs) No, seriously. And as much as I rail on it, I'm really railing on it because I've never lived on it under it. And I really feel you know, brilliant this far in my career when I say that I've never spent one penny on the electronic health record nor one moment of my valuable time learning how to use the electronic because there is a learning curve and every time you go to a new one, there's another learning curve. And the the main thing for me, there are so many reasons why I loathe that because I get those records and I don't, I, they're so voluminous and they're filled with so much information that is irrelevant that you don't need and oftentimes the stuff that you do need is either not there or hidden i mean it's just right amazing and so we took the most important thing to our day-to-day function the doctor's note and allowed it to be destroyed and 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 so and whenever i go on my rants about the ehr people are like well we can't go back to paper well i'm not suggesting that what i'm suggesting is if you took out all of the mandates and that's where the problem comes in because they're making you put in there and then the person has never smoked their entire life and they're 65 and you have to constantly be updating that you're reminding them not to smoke you know it's just stuff like that that is so i mean you have doctors who you know never even met and by the way i've had folks who come to my office patients and they have the the, the, the reams of paper that they were given when they left the doctor's office or left the <laughs> ER about all the counseling that they received about this, that, and the other thing. And they say, Dr. McKnight, no one ever said any of this to me. So it builds in a, almost like a dishonesty. What we're trying to do is to build an honest relationship with our patients where our patients feel like, what, and then you leave and it says, I, I counseled the patient on, you know, riding their bike with a helmet. I counseled the patient. <laughs> None of that yeah, was right. done. So there's, so I, I reject the whole thing. It's a very, it's government mandated. Uh, and that's why it doesn't make any sense. And so it's a shame that the doctors allowed this to happen. Uh, so I do use computers. They are very important to my day-to-day function. 
but I try not to let that interfere with my relationship with the patient. My relationship is with the patient, not the computer. Uh, it's um, it, it, again, it's 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 that's another thing that adds to your happiness question. The other thing is when doctors bring homework, uh, does your wife have to bring home um, EH, you know, stuff that she's entering in or is she efficient enough to get oh, it done she at does, work? She absolutely does notes. I, I would say this though. I would say her time, it, it is it is somewhat better for her to have the EHR only in that she was still doing handwritten notes right? Um, after hours, which I mean, every doctor would talk, complain about as well. Yeah. Uh, and now she's just doing them, but now she can do them from home as opposed to having to be in the office doing them. But right. I don't know that the, I don't know that the, from a timing standpoint, it's been a significant difference. Maybe I think they see a few less patients, but, mm-hmm. um, well, so I think I, what they, what they pointed out in that talk, I mentioned the fact that, um, the, um, uh, AMA tweeted out about the 83 minutes a night that family doctors are spending on their computers doing, uh, tasks, you know, uh, from their home. <laughs> Yeah, and 83, that works out to four to six weeks a year. If you calculate that over a, a physician's lifetime, this is uncompensated work. It, it's like three and four years, you know, if you're going to work for 35 years. It's it, it's as much time as you would have taken on vacation is spent at home doing that kind of stuff on your – so I, I do think that's a big chunk of doctor time that is not being compensated. So to those young doctors, as we're talking about what you put in your contract, they should at least be yeah. getting – you know, a hundred dollars an hour for what they're doing at home. And guess what? That's very documentable because you can show when you logged on and you can show when you logged off and you could be reimbursed for that time spent. I mean, something's got to give there. Doctors should not be expected to do that with no compensation. Um, and so for the young doctors, um, maybe they could get that to put in there, in their maybe. contract. I yeah. Mean, I, the, the interesting thing though is, you know, these contracts, my impression with these large, health systems contracts is they're really kind of pretty much non-negotiable. Um, if you are a, an extremely sought after, especially like we haven't had, you know, we have one rheumatologist in town of 300,000, we need, you know, three more. Maybe you have room there to negotiate something, uh, unique, but most of these are kind of boilerplate. They don't allow much for a variation. And I would say, you know, our group for anesthesia, we're a very large anesthesia group, we are pretty much the same way. We don't say you can come in and negotiate your own terms. People try and we're like, yeah, we're just not going to allow that right, or you sure, know, this or that sure. because it doesn't make, it makes it too complicated from us from an administrative standpoint for us to try and figure out, you know, who has what agreement for, for what, you know? Right. Um, so I don't know. I mean, well, no, I, I agree. It's... I agree with that. But for instance, um, to get to this point about whether or not your at home work should be compensated. You know, oh yeah. I agree. But, you know, it obviously should be. And, you know, I, I was uh, this talk that I gave to the fellows. Um, I did bring up some points of where doctors are sticking together. Some uh, examples of this. Uh, so, for instance, take a what they had that hospital staff, that 93 doctor staff up in North Carolina that basically just went and said, "We want out of our employment contract." You know, they didn't like what was being done, and the entire hospital system just had to let them out. Now, I think they must be still using the hospital, but they're no longer employed. And so imagine if you had a group of doctors on a hospital staff who said, look, we're not going to do this free work anymore. We're going to, we want, and everybody gets the same amount. Every doctor's time when you're talking about at-home work should be valued the same. I mean, in in RVUs and all that, sometimes I guess the surgeon gets more than the family doctor. But in this context, if you're doing at-home charting, boom, it's whatever the doctors decide at that hospital staff is going to be paid per, per hour done. I think they should do something like that and join together this concept that we should take this work home and that it is our duty to do it for free is nonsense and somebody needs to end it. And so uh, that that would be but you would need doctors standing together, you know, uh, standing in defense of the profession, as I like to say, where they basically fight back against some of these things. And it can be very powerful. You know, they had down in South Florida recently a um, all they the hospital staff forced the resignation of the CEO and uh, another high-ranking administrator because what they tried to do was change the admitting policies, which would have essentially not allowed non-employed doctors to admit. So the employed and the non-employed doctors got together and they they had a unanimous no-confidence vote in these folks and they were forced to resign. So when the staff sticks together, you really can affect change that can be good for doctors. It's all about sticking together. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, attorneys don't, attorneys charge for their time. 
always, Correct. right? I mean, there's always an hourly charge. And so it it's reasonable that if you're working, I I would only say, so the, the thing that people would say immediately is they'd say, well, why don't doctors just unionize, right? And, um, yeah. and then, it, and, and, and I would just counter by saying what's going to happen is, but what invariably happens with unions is it, it sort of just protects the people who are the, at the bottom who aren't right. very good or, and the dishon and there's a dishonest aspect of it too, where, you know, now let's just say I could say I was working two hours at home. Maybe I was only working an hour and a half. You know, there's, right. there are a well, lot of, although there are a lot of difficult checks. I agree, but I do think that would be very, I, I think, you, you know, just like you do a time card, you know, you can, this is a very traceable thing that I'm just talking about just one aspect of things. You log in right. and you do pay. I mean, that's very, people yeah, can yeah. go and check that. There can be random audits of things like that. And, and, and that can be checked. So, so that particular example, I actually think you could get around that, but your point about unionization, I, that's not something that I would support. I'm not somebody who would support unionizing. I, I that's one of the reasons that I like social media and to get on things like Twitter and, and things because if all doctors did that and everywhere I go, I ask doctors, are you on Twitter? And they almost think it's beneath the profession to be on Twitter. And I'm like, no, you need to get on there because it's a way we can communicate with each other about, um, you know, what's happening in medicine. I mean, the reasons that I know some of the things we've been talking about is because I get on Twitter and an article will pop up and I'll look at it. And then, you know, and so you, you get educated. I am on it for the meta, for the politics and economics of medicine. I'm not really on it for, you know, anything else. You know, I want other doctors to understand about opt-out magic and all the rest. So I do my own little thing, but I, it's all about economics and politics. I ignored that my whole early career, and I think that's what got us into trouble. So I am paying attention to it now. And if all doctors did that, I just believe we could be a stronger voice just because we all really agree for the most part. There are only very few people who don't agree with doctors becoming uh, like, for instance, direct primary care movement. I mean, when people hear of it, they like it. Doctors do because they see it as an, uh, a way back to some autonomy and independence for doctors. Every now and then somebody will throw in there and they don't seem to agree with it. And then you go look at their bio and their their health IT, their management, right? Yeah, right. you know, I mean, so we're not going to know a population. How do we keep them healthy? <laughs> exactly. And so I, uh, so I, that's why union, no more, uh, interaction through social media. Yes. The thing that I, that I have come to know, which is a little bit disheartening to me because when I became activated, I did go back into, uh, you know, I, I just recently finished being the president. Last year, I was president of my medical society. So I did that whole thing and still active and started going to the FMA. And this organized medicine is a, it's a slower, it's a bureaucratic. People tell you, yeah, I really am on board. And then things don't happen. So that's, that's a problem. And even our specialty societies, like I just saw something pop up and I, I didn't have time to read it. It was long, but the statement now from the family practice, the Academy of family practice doctors, basically on MOC and essentially, you know, they are, you know, basically going along with MOC. I mean, they, yeah. they you know, they're, it's all this platitudes, just just platitude after platitude. They just, don't say no. And it's time to do that. Meaning we need, and our special societies aren't going to, they actually make money from all the review courses. So it's kind of this, uh, everybody against, you know, the, the, the doctors. And until we decide we're going to just say no and stand up, defend the profession and all the rest, we're going to be up against all of that. Unfortunately, hopefully it's the classic, I was going to oh, mention just, a, just about Dr. Right. Wes's Fisher's, um, Lost, yes. you know, that's mm -hmm. going to be big. And so I'm following that along to see if something like that were to to break through, meaning doctors actually have a victory on that level. I, can you imagine what that would do to the psyche of doctors? You know, it would be very, very good for us. Right. Well, you know, Dr. Wax had a victory for the osteopathic physicians mm -hmm. against the AOA, uh, yes. where they struck down the mandatory um uh, requirement to be members of the AOA to have a medical license. And so I, th I tend to think, I mean, I tend to think these things will happen. I, 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 I'm part of organized medicine. I was, I'm the immediate past president of the, the uh, County Medical Society here. Mm -hmm. um, I'm active in our medical, state medical society on some level. Uh, it's always difficult because everything you say is, 
100% correct. <laughs> and the problem is, is when you go to Lansing for me, or if you go to DC, the AMA or the state medical societies are the face of physicians, whether you like it or not, oh, I know. You know, when the legislator <laughs> sees them. And so it's always a difficult balance with how much do you want to be, to get involved in, in sort of this large machine mm-hmm. uh, or with your specialty societies, which have um, varying levels of, of defense of independence or protection from onerous testing when it comes to MOC, because like you said, the revenue stream comes from not membership as much right. as it does from the testing services. And they see that money and they realize within it in an era when it's difficult for physicians well, certainly this, the the networking aspect of these medical societies and specialty societies is not as important. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then it becomes, you know, the question is, you know, why do you have these societies? If it, you know, sure, they do some lobbying at the, to protect your, you know, whatever at the, right. in the, for legislation mm-hmm. and regulations. But you start having questions of what value am I getting from this, from this organization? If right. I'm not into the, if I'm not, if I don't find lobbying important, do I right. want to be a part of it? So it's always a cl- the classic questions of, well, do you want to be, if you're not at the table, you're for Eat. dinner, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, the yeah. problem is, of course, is maybe to get a seat at the table, I've got an off my foot, right? <laughs> and so the, so, you know, what are you willing to give up in order to get to the table and what, and to get to the table, maybe you've given up so much that now you can't get anything back, right? I, and I, those are the the difficult things, like even talking to Lee Gross, mm-hmm. you know, how much do you get involved in the, and what do you do? And I think it's sort of like when I talk to other people about just politics in general, and people say, you know, I have this, this message I want to get out there. What's the best way to get it done? Do I run for office? Do I work, right. you know, in a nonprofit or whatever? And I always say, it's whatever you're really good at. Right. Maybe you're someone who's not any good at, at like talking to people on the street. Right. And maybe you should be doing something else. Or if you're really good at that, maybe you should be running for office. Or I think you kind of just find whatever you enjoy and right. and and hope that there are enough other people with the same thought that you energize them to get involved in the whatever way they feel is most important or they're most effective. Because I think you just never really know. Yeah. And so I don't know. I, I don't have a better answer than to say I think just do something. Right. And, I think all doctors should do experiment. something. I agree with you there. And I actually am still – you know, I'm still involved with, I mean, like I say, I was, you and I must've been presidents at the same time. Were you, were you president in 2018 of your medical yeah. society? And I was just, here. A, just the County. Yeah. And yeah, mm-hmm. my County's medical society, but I'm still going to be, I'm going as a delegate to FMA again this year. Yeah, and so mm-hmm. I'm, so I'm doing all of that and uh, everything, but I still think there would be something. I, I worry that those uh, pathways are going to not be quite, not get us quite where we want to be. There is one way that that could change, however, if there are some significant victories, like with uh, this new lawsuit that's going forward. Mm-hmm. And, and right. again, because then they have to come around because they can't just drag their feet any longer. I, I was unfortunately told that um, that this upcoming two years in Florida, the legislative session is pretty much, you know, we're going to be in a defensive mode because uh, they're going to try to uh, stop uh, expansion of scope and all that but as far as really trying to advance things like moc they're not even going right. there because we apparently the the um with the way the legislature is set up this year we have some people that are not friends of doctors that are in high places and so you know so we've got two years where everybody just decided to be kind of sedentary and we're going to see what happens with that but thankfully in other parts of the country things are going forward and i do i'm encouraged by what i see uh dr lee gross and 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 atlas md those guys doing because i believe lamar alexander is kind of paying attention to them up there on the federal level. And that could be big too if, if a lot of things break for DPC. Because I believe DPC, because it is such a direct relationship with patients and it cuts out all of the superfluous intermediaries, if they have success there, it's going to show a lot of doctors, all doctors, what can be done. Uh, and then maybe more specials will do things like I'm doing with fair cash pricing and, and, and all of that. And it, it could really break out a percentage of doctors. And that's always good, even for the doctors who remain in. It's good there's a small percentage of doctors who are broken out and are doing something different because it keeps the, you know, bureaucrats and the overlords and all that. It keeps them guessing and it keeps them on their toes. And they know that they better be good to the doctors who stay in. That's what I would think would be the ultimate of that, you know, kind of uh, sequelae of those doctors breaking away could be better for the doctors staying in, honestly. 
I don't I don't think there's any question about that. And I think a great example of 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 people breaking the the norm and whatever one may think of homeschooling. At one time homeschooling was you know, only weirdos are doing it. It's super rare. Yeah. Uh, it it's not something that you know kids aren't going to learn anything, et cetera, et cetera. It has become an established practice in every all fifty states now. It's it's a you know it whether you want to do it or not. Right. People do not look at it as as that you are doing something that is harming Fringe. the kid. I mean, well, maybe yeah. they do think that, but and similar to DPC, I, I I truly feel as you do that by just showing that you can practice medicine sort of the way patients and physicians generally want it practiced on a primary care level and potentially other, you know, and other specialties that you have, you've shown that the system as it is now, that it, we already know it's all broken and it's too right. expensive and whatever, but you're going to show that there's a way of doing, providing the same quality care, maybe even better care mm-hmm. at a, you know, a fraction of the cost. People right. are going to say, why are we doing it? And so I think you'll, so I'm not worried about things like what's going on in New Hampshire. You mentioned in your email about the the state legislatures right. talking about <sighs> banning physicians from you know practicing this way. I mean, there are all kinds of crazy laws that go into state legislatures that never get to committee level or anything like that. I mean, right? You know, uh, somebody, some some crazy out yeah, there. Someone just put it in. An idea. Yeah, exactly. Right, and no, I mean it could happen, I suppose, but it would be it it will get to some point where, and there will probably be some pushback significant in a couple of years, I think, to DPC much like it was with homeschooling. I mean, it was like there was suddenly there were the vested interests that are opposed to homeschooling did everything they could to stop it. Correct. And then they realized there was too much groundswell support from the people who care most about it. Right. Namely the people whose kids are being educated in this case, be patients. Right. Right. Cause they're the, they have the most vested interest in their health. The people who are actually, it's their own health. Right. Right. And so once they speak up, then it doesn't matter what anybody wants is from the, the, the government standpoint, because people are just going to, they'll demand it. Right. And, um, and so I think you'll, I think you'll see that. I think you're going to see some vociferous response in a couple of years, but it will be too late because it, the, the method will have proven to be useful. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, yeah, it's and interesting because I think what why you're not seeing quite that a negative response to DPC yet is because it's it's so small. But you realize that in a, like a seven year period, I mean, there's been like almost exponential growth of it. And oh yeah, and I think the next few years, as you mentioned. That, that it'll go even higher and that's when the people who are who are going to lose in this arrangement are going to disparage start speaking out and really disparage it so hopefully the dpc folks are ready for that onslaught i believe that they are uh because they're you're right i hadn't even thought about it in that way that probably once it gets a little bigger and people are really threatened by it the, the profiteers as i like to call them um they will they will start trying to well, they already do. This is the one thing I'll say about that. When you hear someone disparage DPC, it's often because, well, you know, it doesn't solve every single problem. Well, of course, no, of nothing course not. does and nothing does. So, uh, in, but what has? Has Medicare ever solved every healthcare problem? Did Medicaid? Would Medicare for all? No, not no system solves everything. But it doesn't mean. And so I had a tweet, something along those lines saying, stop holding DPC to the standard because it's ridiculous. No one, no, no way of delivering care solves every problem the question is can we do it better and i believe that is an avenue and it's an avenue which gives doctors their independence back and that to me is the most important part of it all uh, because we then become the professionals that we were meant to be as opposed to data entry clerks you know and i think it's a whole yeah. different model so i'm looking forward to seeing that go forward and and how that will all turn out yeah i'm actually very encouraged by everything i think um and i think for patients it's going to be a great thing and um and i think those are the people i mean the patients are the ones who are going to benefit the most from this from the from the this i think it's a i think we're seeing the beginning of a revolution and we're just we just need us when we look back about five years from now i think we're going to start we're going to recognize what's happened i just look in our town and we've gone from two to four practices in a year right dpc and i i suspect that as it's seen as to to work (laughs) residents are going to flock towards it I, i mean i just I do. And, I agree. Well, we I could agree. we could talk here for about it forever. Absolutely, and, I know. And I'm gonna have to wrap it up. And yeah, uh, thank you so much for being on, um, Ellen McKnight. So, uh, best places to find you. I mean, you're a Twitter. I think I'm you're a at Twitter. McKnight yeah. MD Ellen. Yeah. So it's not. Yes. Yeah, so it's um, Doctor L uh, at um, McKnight MD Ellen. Uh, yeah, I'd love anybody to, to to follow me. And like I say, I love to do all my medical politics. I try to make it clever, but I really retweet and repost a lot of information 
about the DPC movement because I am a big supporter. So uh, I, you know, I just uh, I'm just encouraged by the whole thing as you are. I think we we're seeing a change, and that's exactly what we need to see. Well, thank you so much Thanks for being an outspoken, outspoken advocate for physicians to reclaim their dependence and practice medicine the way they want to instead exactly. of at the dictates of a larger entity. So thanks again. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. Yeah. Bye. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.